Okay, now let's get on with the sermon. I think that's all in the way of announcements. Uh, a question has come up. A scripture was quoted. Some of you will remember, probably all will, that I've been saying recently, the last few weeks and months, that uh, it's becoming a possibility, in my mind at least, that a physical temple needs to be built. Now, I had taken the approach for years that the spiritual temple was the key and that we certainly need to build the spiritual temple of God. But some scriptures had been coming to light lately that made me think perhaps we should have a physical temple as well, both spiritual and a physical temple. But the scripture was brought up, God does not live in temples made with hands. Uh, therefore, we don't need a physical temple. I went through uh, a lot of scriptures early this morning and uh, chased this down and want to discuss it more today. Was I wrong in speculating that perhaps we do need a physical temple and need to back off on that? Or is there evidence that it is still true and that we have to have a better explanation of that scripture about God not dwelling in temples made with hands. What is it? Now, the view in Worldwide Church of God over the decades was always that there needed to be a physical temple. But at some time, uh, the Antichrist would defile the temple of God, just as Antiochus did in history, and that there had to be a physical temple for him to, set, to cease the sacrifices so we've always had the view that there would need to be a physical temple. It wasn't, though, that the church needed to build it. The view was that the Jews would build it, the Jews would start physical sacrifices, and then the man of sin would stand up in that physical temple and cause those sacrifices to cease, and that would be the abomination of desolation, and it would be time for the church to flee. So... Daryl saying that there needs to be a physical temple is not a new thought. It's something that's been around the church all these decades. It's just a matter of what the application would be. Recall that Herbert Armstrong did build an auditorium and dedicated it to the great God. Now that was in what we've come to see was the former temple. The latter temple is yet to be built since the former temple was destroyed. And certainly Joseph de Koch and Joseph Sr., or Jr., and their ilk, Stanley Rader and Stavronides and different ones, did offer the swine a false doctrine on the altar in Pasadena, and it was defiled. And I think that was a minor fulfillment of what has to come in the end. They were a form of Antichrist, but a minor form. Let's not give them too much credit. There is a much greater Antichrist coming at the end. And I do believe there has to be a physical temple that has to be defiled, the daily sacrifice cut off, and the whole world is going to view the new world order that is coming as God himself, as Christ. That is fairly clear to us. So, let's address this. Let's go to Acts 7, first of all. 
in verse 48, where it says, Howbeit the Most High dwells not in temples made with hands, as says the prophet. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, says the Eternal? Or what is the place of my rest? Now this is quoted again uh, by Paul a few chapters later, but let's for a moment get the setting in the context of Acts 7. Here Stephen is, given, is giving this famed sermon to Gentiles, to the prophets and priests of Baal disguised as Jews, or Jews disguised as priests of Baal and so on. They had false gods, verse 43. You took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rimphan, figures which you made to worship them, and I'll carry you away beyond Babylon. He said, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, as Moses and God had appointed, as we shall see. Now, these were stiff-necked, rebellious Jews that Stephen was preaching to. And he got their goat. They finally stoned him at the end of this chapter, the end of the sermon. Now these people, understand their mindset, believed in the physical temple. They tended to look to Abraham, and they tended to look to Moses, and they tended to look to the physical temple only. And Stephen is letting them know that there is something far more important than that physical temple. So he quotes, But God does not dwell in temples made by hand. Well now, we have a tabernacle in the wilderness. We have the temple built by Solomon, later restored by Herod. Was God behind those? Or were those just the ideas of men to build something and put God's name on it? Some might say Herbert Armstrong did that. He built an auditorium for himself and then dedicated it to God, but God wasn't in it. I've heard that basically said by various ones. Don't necessarily agree with it, but I've heard it said. So understand the context of Acts 7, first of all, and let's go back to Acts 17, 24, keep this in mind now. Yes, the Bible does say twice. Acts 17, verse 24, that God dwells not in temples made with hands. Let's see it here. Here Paul is speaking to who? 18, verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics, and they called him a babbler, and then he explained the way things are to them. Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship him, declare I to you. He said, You're ignorant and you're superstitious, and you shouldn't be worshiping this unknown God that I saw the inscription of. Then he says, verse 24, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, 
Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives to all life and breath and all things. Now what is Paul declaring to them? He's declaring the power, the might, the sovereignty of God who needs nothing. What do you get someone who has everything? What can you build him that he does not have? Now let's go back for a moment because they quoted the prophet, and the prophet they quoted was Isaiah, Isaiah 66. Verse 1, Thus says the Eternal, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you build to me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things has my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembles at my word. He's literally saying, you may think you're something, you may think you're great, and you may think you can build something that would impress me, or something that I need. But I made the heavens and the earth. The heavens are my throne, the earth is my footstool. Now in your living room, if you have a comforter, I mean a, an easy chair and a footstool, that easy chair and that footstool sit where? In one room of your bigger house. And it's not the whole house even. Now God says his house is huge. He made the heavens and the earth. And the heavens are his throne where he actually sits. And this 25,000 miles around earth down here is something he uses for a hassock, a footstool. That's all it is to him. Now if the heavens are his throne and the earth is his footstool, how big a house are you going to have to build around that? How big is the living room going to have to be? Do we begin to get the point? God is so big, so great, so powerful, that anything we ants, or worm Jacob, want to do on this earth is nothing that is going to impress the creator of heaven and earth. He's lived eternally. We live a short while. We're physical and we stink and die, or die and stink. Or stink and die and stink. We do it all. We're not much. That's the point he's trying to make. So does that mean then that there is no need for a physical temple? Was God behind the building of physical temples in the past? Or was it just the vanity of men? And if God was behind the building of the tabernacle and the temples... Is there a contradiction here in Scripture? Well, maybe we need to look at the whole thing. You know, it's real easy to pick one verse out of context and make a very shallow judgment. I've seen people do it on typing. Well, this verse is good enough for me. And they do not consider everything God says. I've seen it done with the Sabbath. I've seen it done with any subject you want to name where people will take one verse or part of a verse or even one word 
and make an entire doctrine out of it, rather than studying the entire context, and not only the context in which that scripture is, but all the scriptures in the Bible about any one subject, which has to be put together to form a full picture of God's meaning. We must be very, very careful in making statements based on one verse or one word because we can get ourselves into deep, deep trouble and not have the understanding we need. So let's look at a lot more scriptures, shall we? Let's consider, first of all, the tabernacle in the wilderness. Let's go back to Exodus 25. I'm going to skip fairly rapidly through this. I have a lot of scriptures I want to cover and try to do it all in one day. Exodus 25, verse 1. And the Eternal spoke to Moses. It does not say Moses spoke to the Eternal here. Notice. The Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me an offering of every man that gives it willingly. With his heart you shall take my offering, and this is the offering which you shall take of them. Gold, and silver, and brass, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skin, dyed red, badger skin, and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. So very many precious things God categorizes here that he's going to need for the project that he is introducing to Moses. And let them make me a sanctuary, or a house, that I may dwell among them. Hmm. The onus is here from God, isn't it? It's not from man, not from Moses. God said, Moses, you tell the people to bring offerings. I want them to make a sanctuary or a house that I may dwell with them. According to all that I show you, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So there was something that was a pattern. We'll examine that a little later on. That he was to use to build this earthly tabernacle made with hands where God would come and dwell with them. Boy, we have a contradiction started here, don't we? Let's move on. Um, 28, verse 35. He's talking about all the things that needed to be done for Aaron the high priest. Uh, verse 35, And it shall be upon Aaron to minister, and his sound shall be heard when he goes in to the holy place before the eternal, and when he comes out, that he die not. So filling in the story, when this tabernacle was built, God would be in the Holy of Holies, and Aaron was to go in there once a year in the presence of God. God would be there and he had to make sacrifices ahead of time and be sure he had on the holy garments. Otherwise, he could not appear before God and he would die. So God is continuing to give instruction. Let's go to chapter 29, verse 42. Verse 42 of chapter 29. This shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the eternal, where I will meet you to speak there to you. So God is going to be there. He would meet them, and he would speak to them. 
And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. So the glory of God was to be in that tabernacle. And I will sanctify the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. I will sanctify also both Aaron and his sons to minister to me in the priest's office. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God. And they shall know that I am the eternal their God that brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Does it appear that his intention was to be to dwell with Israel and in the tabernacle that he requested they built? I don't think this takes any great genius to recognize. Chapter 40, verse 34. It was built. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Eternal filled the tabernacle. So when it was dedicated, God did indeed move in, didn't he? Was he then dwelling in the tabernacle made with hands? Let's go to Numbers. I want to bring this up uh, and hope to comment it later on if I remember. Number 17, verse 7. And Moses laid up the rods before the Eternal in the tabernacle of witness. Now God was going to use this tabernacle as a witness that he was God. We're going to find that there has to be a witness given in the end time, that God is God. So all these things are a precursor to that which is to come, okay? A witness that God is God. We'll see that a little later on. All right, now let's talk about the temp temple itself. I want to go to Second Samuel, Second Samuel 7. And let's see the circumstances regarding uh, the temple itself, not just the tabernacle. Second Samuel 7. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the eternal had given him rest round about from all his enemies. He wasn't at war. He could take time to consider something else. That the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. David thought that this was wrong. Why do I have this nice cedar home and God's tabernacle and he just dwells in curtains? And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the eternal is with you. So Nathan was a prophet of God, and he said, God is with you in what you're thinking, David. And it came to pass that night that the word of the eternal came to Nathan, say, Go tell my servant David, Thus says the eternal, Shall you build me a house for me to dwell in? Second-guessing what David is thinking. Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even to this day, but have walked in a tent and in a tabernacle. I haven't had a permanent house. We've been wandering 40 years, and you know, back in the wilderness, and that was the only house that was built for me. So I've been dwelling in tents and tabernacles. I've walked in that. In all the places wherein I have walked with all the children of Israel, spoke I a word with any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to feed my people Israel, saying, 
Why build you not me a house of cedar? Hey, David, have I ever said anything about you building me a fine house? Now, therefore, so shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the eternal of hosts, I took you from the sheep coat, from following the sheep, to be a ruler over my people, over Israel. And I was with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies out of your sight, and made you a great name, like to the name of the great men that are in the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own, and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And it's since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And when your days be fulfilled and you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, which will proceed out of your bowels, and I will establish his kingdom, speaking of Solomon. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So we know that God told David that he would not build a temple, but Solomon would. Let's go to First Chronicles 22. First Chronicles 22. And here, begin in verse 7. Well, first, yeah. And David said to Solomon, My son, this was late in David's life, Solomon had grown up. My son, as for me, it was in my mind to build a house to the name of the Eternal my God. But the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, You have shed blood abundantly and have made great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed much blood upon the earth in my sight. We just read that in Samuel. Behold, a son shall be born to you, who shall be a man of rest. And I will give him rest from all his enemies round about, for his name shall be Solomon, which means sun and moon, or peaceable. And I will give peace and quietness unto Israel in his days. He shall build a house for my name, and he shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for Israel forever. Now, my son, the Lord be with you and prosper you, and build the house of the eternal, your God, as he has said of you. So here it is God who is directing that this be done. Chapter 28, chapter 28 of First Chronicles, verse 19. All this, said David, the Eternal made me understand in writing by his hand upon me even all the works of this pattern. And David said to Solomon his son, Be strong and of good courage, and do it. Fear not, nor be dismayed, for the Eternal God, even my God, will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you, till you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the eternal. God is going to be with you through this whole project. He's not going to forsake you. It's going to be done. God is going to make sure that it happens. So is this this at the behest of men only or of God? That's the question we're discussing here. 2 Chronicles 2, verse 4. Solomon says to Hiram, who helped him, Behold, I build a house for the name of the Eternal my God, to dedicate it to him, and to burn before him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, and for the burnt offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths, on the new moons, and on the solemn feasts of the Eternal our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. And the house which I build is great, 
for great is our God above all gods. But who is able to build him a house, seeing the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain him? Who am I then that I should build him a house, save only to burn sacrifice before him? Well, Solomon was humbled by the whole thing, and he realized that God is great, as Isaiah said. And how was he going to build anything adequate to represent God? Verse 12, Hiram said, moreover, Blessed be the eternal God of Israel that made heaven and earth, who has given to David, the king, a wise son, endued with prudence and understanding, that might build a house for the eternal and a house for his kingdom. So the recognition here is that God was behind this, and it would be done. Chapter 5, uh, let's see one more here. Verse 11. Came time that it was done. Uh, verse 10, there was nothing in the ark save the tables which Moses put therein at Horah, uh, when the Eternal made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. It came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place, uh, for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course, or do their job by course. Uh, let's go on down, verse 13. It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Eternal, and when they lifted up their voices with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Eternal, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Eternal, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Eternal had filled the house of God. So it was completed, it was dedicated, and the glory of God filled it. Was God in that house? Or was God not? This contradiction is getting bigger and bigger, isn't it? Now, let's go to the New Testament again and turn to Hebrews 8. God does not do things without a purpose. Now, we're going to see before this day is over, if I live that long, uh, what God intends to do, and how he intends to do it, and why he has been doing what he has been doing, and why he built the ark, or the, uh, the tabernacle in the wilderness, and why he had Solomon construct a temple. Now, the book of Hebrews is discussing Messiah, discussing Christ himself all the way through. So let's go to chapter 8. Now, the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Of all the things that he had covered up to chapter 8 about Christ, this is a summation. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a ministry of a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the eternal pitched and not man. We're beginning to see already that there was a purpose. Now God didn't need a place to live, did he? He had the heavens and the earth as his footstool. So if he didn't need a place to live, what was the purpose? The purpose of the tabernacle and the temple will be explained right here. They were a picture, a type, a pattern of something heavenly, something more important. It wasn't that God needed a place to live because he was homeless. It was that man needed to understand something and needed to live through something to come to understand how great God is. 
and what kind of house he ultimately will require. And how holy we must needs be if we are to dwell in the house of the eternal. Okay? Paul begins to explain that here. Christ is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which God has pitched in heaven. Something to point us to the heavens and to where God is. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices, whereof it is of necessity this man have somewhat also to offer. Aaron had to offer bulls and goats and sheep and doves. This one offered himself. And he represented the heavenly temple as he did so. Who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly... Oh, let's, I guess I skipped verse 4. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. We didn't need another priest on the earth as a human being. They were already here. Why do you need that? Who served to the example and shadow of heavenly things. So he's saying Aaron and the Levitical priesthood were there as an example of the heavenly, of the Christ to come, of Messiah that would come someday. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, says he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mountain. So God was patterning the physical tabernacle after the heavenly, and he showed Moses the pattern to go by. When you make a dress, a lot of you ladies will buy a pattern. If you don't just go to China Mart to get your dresses, but used to at least, they had pattern stores or catalogs that you would order patterns from and you would make your dress according to the pattern. God did the same thing with the temple. But now has he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Eternal life was given as a promise. It wasn't offered the first time. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Was something wrong with the first covenant? No, it was them. For finding fault with them, he said, Behold, the days come says the Eternal, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And it'll be a different kind of covenant. He said in verse 10, end of it, I'll put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me my people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their righteousness, unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Okay, let's go to chapter 9 and, and sort of summarize it or skip through it as well. Then truly the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service in a worldly sanctuary where God would dwell in a way. For there was a tabernacle made. And then it talks about all the things that were in it, including the mercy seat that he didn't have the details on what it was like. Verse 6, now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So God was there, and it was the service of God. But into the second, or the Holy of Holies, went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people, or animal sacrifices he did before he went in there. The Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So the Holy Spirit says, 
God says through his Spirit, that we could not go before God the Father until Christ came. Because the first tabernacle was no longer needed then, he offered salvation, and we'll see what part we play in that shortly. But he says that first tabernacle, verse 9, was a figure or a form or a forerunner or a pattern for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The blood of bulls and goats could never forgive sin. And God was never pleased with the blood of bulls and goats, which stood only in meals and drinks or, and different washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Some of those things are not necessary now <clears throat> because there has been a Reformation through Christ. But Christ being come, a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. He was standing in the temple. He said, not of this building, but a figure not made with hands, a heavenly. Neither by the blood of bull and goats. By his own blood he entered in once to the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. That's verse 12. And then he said, the blood of bull and goats didn't help. Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that then he gave us an eternal promise of life. Let's skip on down to verse 23. It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So all these tabernacles, temples on the earth, have only been a figure or a pattern for something greater, and that is eternal life to Christians. Now this could be giving a little ammunition to the idea we don't need a physical temple, couldn't it be? Where, where is the answer in all this? Notice verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, or the heavenly. He said Christ didn't come here to dwell in the physical tabernacle or the physical temple. And it's true what Stephen and Paul both said. God does not dwell in temples made by hands. That is not his principal dwelling. That's not what he's all about. There is something bigger than that. He did those things for a reason. Now, was he there? We've already seen that his glory lighted it up. I'll explain that more in a moment when we get to some other scriptures. These things are only figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Okay, I think that's enough of that to show that those things were there as a type, as a figure, as a pattern for something greater. And obviously Christ is greater. Now let's go to some scriptures which we are, I'm sure, quite familiar with, but I want to apply them in this context. 2 Corinthians 6, uh, he's talking to the Corinthians here who had become a part of the church of God, and he says to them in verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. 
Now, the physical temple was still there. It had not been destroyed yet. It wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. But he's putting the physical temple aside that Herod had rebuilt and saying, you are the temple of God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And then he tells us to get separate from this world. Don't be like it. Don't live with it. Get it out of your system, out of your life, in every way, because God wants to dwell in you. All right, let's go to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, verse 21. Well, let's start in verse 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together grows to a holy temple in the eternal. Because you church members are the temple of God, framed together and be living in unity and harmony as a temple to the eternal in whom you also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now that's something we did not read in 2 Corinthians 6.16, through the Holy Spirit. Now God says that we are his temple and he dwells in us through the Spirit. Now if you'll recall those verses that we read back in Samuel and Chronicles, the glory of God, and it mentioned in one place the Spirit of God, came and dwelt in that tabernacle or that temple. Did God himself bring the dishes and move physically into the tabernacle or the temple? I submit to you that he did not. He dwelt there in spirit. A God has shape and form. He is not a cloud or a spook. We, as men and women in close proximity, are made in the image of God. He has shape and form. It speaks of his face, speaks of his hair, speaks of his hands, speaks of his feet, his body, his spirit. But nonetheless, he is a singular being. And he can project himself through different parts of his universe. His influence can be felt anywhere he desires to make it felt. Now, we are a group of people here, are we not? Now, if God, as a being, came and dwelt specifically in you, how's he going to be in the person sitting next to you? It's a phenomenon that he can accomplish by staying in heaven. Where does Satan go to accuse the brethren? To you? If you're where God is, that's where he'd have to go. No, God is on his throne in heaven, and Satan goes before that throne in heaven to accuse us until he is cast down. So we are the temple of God, and he dwells in us in spirit, and his spirit can be felt and be implanted, begotten in all our minds. Just as in my house, my influence can be felt in every room in the house. If the dog is in the other room, I can yell, and my influence carries to the dog in the other room, and he comes to see what his Lord and Master wants. 
I don't have as much influence on the cat. I'm staff. But still, he hears me. And if he happened to be where he isn't supposed to be, and I yell out enough, that cat's going to come off of there. Because it scares him. I can even influence my wife some. She's in the other room. But then she can me too. Works both ways. I can call by telephone. That's not me being there in the house or in the room, but I can call by telephone and ask somebody to do something, and can't my influence go through the air on the cell phone or through the line in the house phone, and somebody else is affected by that? Can I be talking to two people, one on the hand phone and one, or the hand line, the landline and one on the cell phone, maybe at the same time? And be, and have my influence go several places at once? Or talk right here? And have a lot of people here, not only here, but on the telephone, and later read it over the computer, and that influence can be felt around the world. And it is. Now, you can do the same thing. I'm not bragging about what I can do. It's not me anyway. It's telephones. or the voice that God gave me. And you can do the same thing. So you can be bigger than just you, okay? That's the point I'm trying to make. You're here with a physical body and a physical mind, but you can make your influence felt far and wide via telephone or television or whatever. God can do the same thing, only in much greater power and with no landlines at all. He can do whatever he wishes anywhere in the universe. He is sovereign. He is God who made it all. So he can dwell in us in spirit, just as he dwelt in the tabernacle and the wilderness and the temple in spirit. He didn't pack up and move there, but he went there in spirit. And the scripture is very clear on that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3. We'll put all this together in a little bit. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Know you not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So he tells us to be very careful with this temple. God dwells in us by his Spirit. See? He doesn't come and live in us as an individual, but as individuals who have the Spirit of God. Chapter 6, verse 19. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you? It confirms what I just said. Which you have of God, and you are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So God has given us his Holy Spirit. And that's how he dwells in us, is through the Spirit. Now let me ask you a question. Are you a temple made with hands? You're physical, aren't you? You're made with hands, well, and other body parts. You came out of a womb. But you're physical. You're made by physical human beings. And yet God says he dwells in you. But it's by his Spirit. So we, even though 
we are begotten of the Spirit of God are still temples made with hands. It is just that we are made more important by His Spirit dwelling in that physical brain and combining with the Spirit in man to make something that's intelligent and intelligent beyond other human life by being combined with the Spirit of God that makes us the spiritual sons of God. So we are physical temples, and God makes us spiritual temples by his indwelling spirit. And that's the only thing that makes us different from other people out here in the world, is that God is dwelling in us through his spirit, and we are to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh, like other people do. Let's see one more along these lines back in Leviticus 26. God says here that he will do what it is that he has now done. Leviticus 26, verse 11. <clears throat> He's talking here about the blessings and the cursings that could come on Israel if they would obey, or what would happen if they disobeyed. Uh, verse 11, And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. So he said he would walk among us. He would be. And God does dwell with us now, does walk with us. So, God lives in heaven, the earth is his footstool, but he comes to physical temples and our bodies, which are physical, in spirit. And by the means of his Holy Spirit, he dwells in us, which are physical and made by hands, just as the tabernacle and the temple were. Now, let's take a turn in this and begin to consider some things along the lines of what I mentioned and that the church felt that the Jews would build a temple in that Jerusalem in the Middle East and that they would start having sacrifices there and then that that would have the abomination of desolation set up in it. Let's consider some scriptures. And I want to go first of all to Haggai where he's talking to his spiritual people. It's a prophecy for today. We've been there many, many times because it's the basis of understanding that Herbert Armstrong was the former temple and that the latter temple is to be built and that God is calling for volunteers to do it. Verse 7, well, to lay the background, the people say it's not time to build a house of God in verse uh, 2. Then came the word of the eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you to dwell in your cedar houses, as David put it, and this house lie waste? We've seen Worldwide Church of God destroyed before our very eyes. Now therefore, thus says the eternal of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you not, don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there's none warm. And he that earns wages, earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. That's our society today. Prices are going up very rapidly, if you'll notice. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Think about what you're doing. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal God. Then he says, you had terrible spiritual problems, and this nation is about to have physical problems as well. End of verse 9, because of my house that is waste, and you run every man to his own house. Now, I've read this 
several times over the last year, starting in 1990, well, actually in 81, when I first gave the Sermon on Haggai and Zechariah, but with more understanding, starting in 96, January and February of that time. He says he'll fill this house with glory, verse 7 of chapter 2. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Eternal of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. It's an end-time prophecy because it ends with Adam, God going to shake the heavens and the earth at the end of chapter 2. So it's an end-time prophecy. Now, we never fully had peace in worldwide. There were rebellions here and there, and people began to leave in the 74 and 79, and it all started coming apart at the seams after Herbert Armstrong died, and by 92, it wasn't much, as Ezekiel 17 says. It would wither and die on its own pie, and it has done just that. God spewed it out of his mouth, turned into spittle and vomit, and we are the scattered pieces of it. It's time to repent and become white hot, not to be spewed anymore. Now, it always was interesting to me in verse 8 that it says the silver is mine and the gold is mine. Now, if this is only a spiritual temple, why does it say that? Now, you can say that we'll be God's when he makes up his crowns, as Malachi points out, and that we'll be precious to him, so in one sense the silver and gold could even fit that. But it seemed always to me to be a little bit out of context if you're talking just about a spiritual house here. Now, Zechariah 2 <clears throat> says that in the time of the two witnesses, down in verse 10, Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for lo, I come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. Now, this is in the time that it's talking about Zerubbabel and Joshua and Haggai, and again in chapters 3 and 4 of Zechariah, coming and building the church, to leave out the court of the Gentiles and, the, and come and measure those who serve the altar and worship there in, there in Revelation 11, 1 and 2. But the church has to be built first. That's very clear in chapter 4. And it is referring to the two witnesses. Herbert Armstrong told me in 1981 that he was the rebel bell and his son was Joshua. And I think in one sense they were a very minor fulfillment of that in that they did build a temple to God, the church, and even a physical auditorium. But that fell apart because of sin. And God is now going to rebuild it with much greater glory than it had before. And there will be old men, it says in chapter 2 of Haggai, who will be able to compare the former with the latter and see that the latter has far more glory than the former. So it's going to be built with better materials and people are going to repent and change and become what they ought to be so that God can give more of his spirit and bring peace truly to the church. But is it only a spiritual temple? Let's stick to the question here. Or is it going to be physical as well? Will there be both fulfillments? Let's go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, we're very familiar with this, read it for years. Uh, verse 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. Herbert Armstrong did not fulfill this. He died over 20 years ago, and the end has not come. The two witnesses are going to fulfill Matthew 24:14, and when they die, three and a half days later, the end will come. 
end of Revelation 11. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso reads, let him understand. And we've gone through that, that this is not something that would easily be understood. The church thought, the world thinks. The Jews are going to build a physical temple and start physical sacrifices and that that will then be defiant. Now let's consider some things. The Jews are not godly. Christ made it very, very clear that they were serpents, snakes, whited sepulchers, and that they would not see him or know him again until they accepted those whom he would send, the apostles and the church, in the Matthew 23. There are a lot of people who were former Worldwide Church of God people today who look to the Jews and are looking more and more to the Jews, and yet Christ called them snakes. Paul said the same thing in Romans 3. He said, and I quote, You worship, you know not what, you are of your father the devil. Now how plain can it get? God is not working through the Jews. Therefore, any temple the Jews build on the Temple Mount in that Jerusalem in the Middle East will not be the temple of God. Do we get it? Let me put it plainer. If the Jews build a temple on that Temple Mount in that city in the Middle East, it will be the temple of the devil. In Christ's own words, I will have nothing more to do with you until you accept the true spiritual Jews, the church. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2 on that note, and I'll show you something else. 2 Thessalonians 2. Oh, I'm in first. No wonder. <clears throat> now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord and by our gathering together to him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. There will be people that will tell you of a false Messiah, and it will be in the end time, as Matthew 24 and Luke 21 show. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. Doesn't it talk about people who will not endure, but will turn on one another and betray one another there in Matthew 24, before it talks about the gospel being preached around the world as a witness. That did not happen, did it, in worldwide? Did we have people turned in by other church members who were killed? Think about it. Herbert Armstrong always said Matthew 24 is a sequential prophecy, one thing right after the other. And he thought his commission was to preach the gospel around the world and in the end would come. But before that, in sequence, it says people would be persecuted and martyred, killed, before the gospel would be preached around the world as a witness, right? And then the abomination of desolation would be set in the temple, and then we would flee. 
That didn't happen. Therefore, Matthew 24, 14 has not been fulfilled yet. There will come out falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Now notice what this son of perdition, or man of sin, does. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, we've already seen that God is not dealing with the Jews, and that is not a direction anybody who is a spiritual Jew should go, even though many in the church are. So any temple they build is not the temple of God, because he's not dealing with them. But this man of sin stands in the temple of God. So this has to be the true temple of God. Now, I think that blows our theory that the Jews would build it and the abomination would be set there. Why would you and I flee from that abomination even more, even any more than we do it from the Vatican or the Methodist Church or the Lutheran or any other? They're just Jews who do not worship God, and God has nothing to do with them. So he's going to sit in the temple of God. Well, I guess there must be a temple then, huh? Is he going to sit in you? No. What do you do? When he sits in God's temple, you flee. You get away. When you see the armies coming around Jerusalem, Luke 21, you flee. And don't turn back. So is the man of sin going to sit in your lap? Well, if he's going to sit in your lap, what about your neighbor's lap? He's a, he's a human being, a man of sin. How's he going to sit in all those laps? No, he's going to be in the temple of God. Therefore, it, must, it appears that we were right in worldwide in saying that there has to be a physical temple for the man of sin to stand in. Let him who reads understand. There's something here that does not normally meet the eye. Let's go to Daniel 8. I may finish this today. Better not brag too soon. Daniel 8. <coughs> now, did not Matthew say, or Christ say in Matthew, through Matthew, that uh, this would occur according to what was written by Daniel the prophet? Okay? So let's read what Daniel the prophet had to say. Daniel 8, verse 11. Yes, he magnifies himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. God's sanctuary, the temple. And a host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. And then one saint asked another, how long is this transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? Now notice the wording here. Both the sanctuary and the host. Now those who are truly obedient to God and are alive and awake spiritually and hot are going to flee and be protected. But what does Satan then do according to Revelation 12? When he sees that his army that was sent after those who are fleeing is destroyed by God in a flood, he goes after the remnant of her seed. So he treads down both the sanctuary and the host. 
both a physical thing and the people. Now, if the temple were only spiritual, why would it say the sanctuary and the host? Looks to me like it has to be both. He sets up camp in the sanctuary of God in the temple. And we flee if we're worthy and are protected, and then he goes back and treads underfoot the host, those who are left behind. So it appears to be both there, doesn't it? All right, let's go to chapter 9, verse 17. Daniel's prayer regarding his people. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary that is desolate for the eternal's sake. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and behold our desolations, and the city which is called by your name, for we do not present our supplications before you for our righteousnesses, but for your great mercies. And then he says, the city and your people are called by your name. Now we know that the church is called Jerusalem and Zion in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, don't we? But this is both the city and the people. So here he's not referring to Zion and Jerusalem as the church. He's referring to it as a physical city along with the people. Both are included here. Let's go on down. Verse 24, Seventy weeks are determined upon your people and upon your holy city. So it talks about the city, Jerusalem. Know therefore, verse 25, and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem shall be uh, 69 weeks, I guess it is, or 70, however it adds up right there. Um, that's not my point. Into uh, the verse, the wall shall be built in troublous times. So a city has to be built, a wall has to be built in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, verse 26, shall Messiah or the anointed, this is talking about the two witnesses actually, or Zerubbabel, be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood, referring to Revelation 12, the flood of people that come after God's, or the flood, or the army that comes after God's people. And to the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now let's go on down. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even till the consummation or the end of it. And then the desolation will be poured upon the desolator. So it does appear here that Jerusalem has to be built and that there has to be a sanctuary or a temple within it and that they are both overrun by the Gentiles. Doesn't Revelation 11 say it will be overrun by the Gentiles, trodden down by the Gentiles for 42 months, three and a half years. We got the same thing in chapter 11. Verse 31, an arm shall stand on his part and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. So it's talking about a singular event that Matthew 24:15 talks about. And Daniel mentions it over and over and over again, the same event. That 
a man of sin, will stand in the temple of God claiming to be God, a false Christ, an antichrist. Now, we've always understood that to be a physical temple. Has anything changed? Uh, let's go quickly to Malachi 3, verse 1. He's talking here to the church, to the ministry as well, primarily the ministry and to the church as a whole. It shows in different places through here. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the eternal whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. It's not the first coming of Christ. He didn't suddenly came. He came as a baby in a womb, grew up, and the church wasn't even established, was it? Not until after his death and resurrection. So he didn't come suddenly to his temple the first time, but he's going to the second time. Even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in, behold, he shall come, says the Lord of hosts. And then who can stand when he does come? Because he will refine. All right, so he's going to come to the temple. Is it just a spiritual temple? Will it be a physical temple as well? Notice Ezekiel 41. This is something we tend to overlook. But here at the end of the prophecies about the end-time church and end-time Jerusalem both, he starts talking about the building of a temple. Now notice chapter 41. He mentions the city first in chapter 40. Then he gets down to 41. He says, afterward, he brought me to the temple. And he goes through all the measurements and the description and the pattern and everything in building a physical temple. Why does he lay out all the detail? I'm not going to go into these eight chapters in depth at the moment. Uh, we're somewhere in the middle of a, a series on Ezekiel, and I'll get to this eventually, but there's things here I needed to understand before I finished it, frankly. And I think I'm beginning to understand them more and more. Now, let's go to Isaiah 44. Here's a prophecy that we have looked at several times recently. There's something in here I missed, and I just about bet you missed it too. Isaiah 44. Now remember this is in the context. Chapter 40 starts, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, and it goes on to show that his church is his witness. He starts talking about how he will work through his people and what he will do. Then he has a prophecy here in specific at the end of chapter 44. But speaking of God here in verse 26, it says that confirms the word of his servant. God is going to confirm the word of his servant. His servant is going to speak from the Bible, and God is going to confirm that the things that are said are true. And performs the counsel of his messengers. So whatever message God sends through his true ministry at the end, God is going to perform. That says, to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. Now, I've showed you in Jeremiah 9, 11, that Jerusalem would be desolate in the end time. In Isaiah 61, that it would be desolate for many generations. Isaiah 58, that we would repair the breach and the walls and rebuild Jerusalem if we are faithful, honest, and true, and obedient to God. I found another one. I think I'll turn back here. I wasn't going to. 
Ezekiel 37, which is beautiful along these lines. Uh, let's see, verse 33, Ezekiel 37, 33. Just before it starts talking about a physical temple being built. Thus says the eternal God, In the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded. Now, just before we got to Isaiah 44, a couple chapters back, I forget exactly where, and I'm not going there now for sake of time, it says that I will remove your sins as a cloud, like the sun coming out and the clouds dissipate. Repeating the same thing here. I will cleanse your iniquities. In another place it says, I'll remove your sin in one day. Makes me wonder if it's Passover. And the desolate land shall be tilled. Now, that Jerusalem in the Middle East has never been completely desolate. And it certainly has not been desolate for many generations. It says that travelers will not even go there in one scripture. One of those I just quoted or one just like it. Jeremiah 33, 10 through 12 say somewhat the same thing. And the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Doesn't Isaiah 51 say, right after it talks about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45, that uh, he will give us the Garden of God and the Garden of Eden? Repeats it right here. And it's before the millennium because it's the latter days. It's before the end time prophecies have finished. Isaiah 40, uh, 54 talks about enemies coming against us, but God will stop it. So we haven't been made eternal yet. Enemies are still coming. So it's still premillennial. Okay? Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Eternal, build the ruined places and plant that that was desolate. I, the Eternal, have spoken it, and I will do it. Now let's go with that background to Isaiah 45 again. He says that a message will come through his servant and his messengers, and that God will confirm it and will perform it. That it, they will, that it will be said to the cities of Judah, you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places there. What does it say the two witnesses are going to do? Zechariah 2, Jerusalem will be built as towns without walls. Towns, uh, seven trees planted in the wilderness, Isaiah 41. Seven churches, seven women will take hold of one man, Isaiah 4. Revelation 2 and 3, seven churches are mentioned there. How ironic. I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That's in the days of the two witnesses, Zechariah 2, before Christ returns, before the millennium. Much men and cattle there. Cattle are very physical, if you've noticed. That says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers. I just came to understand that one the other day. I always thought, well, this is talking about blessing and God raising up. Why does it talk about drying up the deep and your rivers? And I had questioned that one every time I read this. Why does it say that? It sounds like a curse in the middle of blessing. Turn over to chapter 50. Keep your finger there. Turn to chapter 51, verse 10. It finally hit me the other day. What did he do to deliver his people? He parted the Red Sea. He dried up the deep. They got ready to cross into the Promised Land. What did he do? He dried up the Jordan, made it back up so they could walk through on dry land. What God is saying there is, I am going to perform miracles so that you can build back the desolate and waste places. And it's going to be just like parting the Red Sea or backing up the Jordan. 
This is confirmed in chapter 51, verse 10. Speaking of God in verse 9, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days. Do what you did back then in the generations of old. Verse 10, Are you not it which has dried the sea, the waters of the great deep, that has made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? God dried up the deep to protect his people. That's what he's saying in verse 26 of Isaiah 44. Or no, verse 27. I will perform miracles. Remember Jeremiah, I think it's 31, that says the things that I will do in the end time will make you forget the Red Sea. And yet the Red Sea is mentioned all through the Psalms and all through the Bible as a singular important event that God performed. I'm going to do it again, he says, in the end time when it's time to build the decayed cities of Jerusalem and, and Judah. All right, then, verse 28, that says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. Now, Cyrus was a Gentile king, and this is a prophecy about him before he was ever born. And Daniel perhaps mentioned to Cyrus what was written in Isaiah, and Cyrus said, oh, I guess I better do that if God said I would, or something like that. That says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure. What did Cyrus say? Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. That is a prophecy that would occur. Okay? Now, hold your finger there. Let's go back to the book of Ezra. We're going to see something here that I think we overlooked. I certainly did. Ezra 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation through all his kingdom, put it also in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, he either read or had been pointed out to him, possibly by Daniel, who was there, or by Ezra, that he was commissioned of God to build the temple. Okay? So he picked up on it, and he said, God commissioned me to do this. So who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Eternal. Now, you know the story. Uh, some of the Jews of that day went back and used the treasury of Cyrus. All the temple vessels were given to them, and so on. Zerubbabel, uh, they were given. And they went and built the temple of God. It was a physical temple that they built. Okay? Now, we saw in Zechariah 4 some time back, and many times we've gone there, that Zerubbabel is going to lay the foundation of the temple of God. Maybe I should quickly turn back there and read that again, because we need to understand this. Uh, Zechariah 4, we need to understand who Zerubbabel is. Uh, 
Verse 6 of Zechariah 4. Then he answered and spoke to me, saying, This is the word of the eternal Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by spirit, power, but by my spirit, says the eternal of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying grace, grace to it. And in addition, the word of the eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And you shall know that the eternal of hosts has sent me to you. So here we have Osiris saying the foundation of the temple must be laid. And in Ezra we have that King Cyrus actually doing it. Well, here we have a prophecy of Zerubbabel laying the foundation of the temple. And we also have a prophecy of Cyrus laying the foundation of the temple. And I'm going to show you this this. Prophecy has not been fulfilled yet. Now, if Zerubbabel is laying the temple, the spiritual temple foundation, and it goes on down in Zechariah 4 to show that these two olive trees stand at the right side of the candlestick and the left, and they are olive branches which through the two golden pipes empty the golden oil out of themselves, the Spirit of God goes through them. He said, who are these? Zerubbabel and Joshua. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth. There is only one other place in the entire Bible that the two anointed ones stand before God. That's in Revelation 11. That means that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 are one and the same with the Zerubbabel and Joshua of Zechariah 3, 4, and 6. So, the Zerubbabel to come lays the foundation of the spiritual temple, the church of God. It even mentions in Revelation 11, 1 and 2 that they are to forget the Gentiles initially and take care of the church and the ministry. Later on, they go to the world with three and a half years of witness. So, villages without walls and a church, seven churches in the wilderness, have to be built by the two witnesses. That's the spiritual temple. Now, this man Cyrus in Isaiah 44 is represented as a Gentile king. Is he going to build a spiritual temple? No. Unconverted man can't build a spiritual temple. That's for Zerubbabel, one of the two witnesses, to lay the foundation of. So this obviously then has to be a physical temple, doesn't it? Now, it could be said by some that this isn't a prophecy of the future, even though it's in a prophetic context at the end of the age in Isaiah, that the original Cyrus fulfilled that, and it's all done now and doesn't need to be done again. i got news for you. What does it say here? It says, Cyrus will say to Jerusalem, you shall be built... Now, didn't we read in Daniel 9 that the city has to be built in troublous times? That city's there. Jerusalem has to be built in her place, her own place, Zechariah 12, 6. That Jerusalem in the Middle East, I do believe, is a false Jerusalem built in a false place by a false god, Satan the devil. And it has to be built in its original place, which has been desolate now for many generations. And Cyrus, in the end, will say to Jerusalem, you shall be built. And the abomination is going to be set up 
69 and a half weeks, according to Daniel 9, after the order to build Jerusalem. Now here is the kicker. Keep your finger here. Go back to Nehemiah. This I overlooked. I understood, I think, Isaiah 44, but I didn't have proof of the entire thing. Book of Nehemiah. Let's go to chapter 2. It came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, the king, the wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. He was sad, and he said, the city is in ruins, and I'm sad over that. You know the story. Down in verse 3. So he asked if he might go back and build the city of his father's sepulchers in, a, in the verse 5. Who was the king? Was it Cyrus? No, it's Artaxerxes. It's Ahasuerus, Esther's husband, or Xerxes III. Same name for the same person, or three names for the same person. Did Cyrus build a city? No. Nehemiah didn't talk to Cyrus. Cyrus was long gone. He talked to Artaxerxes. Now, didn't we just read that Cyrus would say, to Jerusalem you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid? And yet Cyrus only spoke of the temple in the book of Ezra. The city wasn't mentioned until Nehemiah and Artaxerxes or Ahasuerus, a different king. Cyrus had nothing to do with the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. Therefore, the original Cyrus the king, who did indeed lay the foundation of the temple and make sure it was built, that Cyrus did not fulfill Isaiah 44, 28 regarding Jerusalem itself. It was not done in history. Follow me? Therefore, if it were not done in history... It must be done in prophecy. It is a prophecy that has not been fulfilled. It was only half fulfilled in Cyrus, the original king. Because Ahasuerus dealt with the city. And Isaiah 44, 28 says that he will deal both with Jerusalem and the temple. Has to do both. Hasn't been done to date. Let's read on a little bit more. Thus says the Eternal who is anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him. I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two hinged gates, and the gates shall not be shut. God's going to open a door, and it cannot be shut. God is going to do something in the end time. Didn't he talk to his church and say, I'll open a door before you, and it can't be shut? He's going to do the same thing with this unconverted man. We're going to see in just a moment he's unconverted just as Cyrus was, just as Ahasuerus was, both unconverted. I will go before you and make the crooked places straight. I'll make you able to see things that people can't see because of crooks and turns. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. Anything that would prevent you, I'll cut out from in front of you so that you can go. And I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, didn't we read in Haggai, God said, the silver and the gold is mine. 
and is mentioned in the context of building the temple. Now, this is a physical man, so this has to be physical gold and silver. It can't be the spiritual. Zerubbabel and Joshua are dealing with that. This has to be physical. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places, that you may know that I, the Lord, which call you by your name, am the God of Israel. He doesn't know it, but he's going to find out. For Jacob my servant's sake, and Israel my elect, I have even called you by your name. Now, he says, everything you're doing, Cyrus, end time Cyrus, who will deal with both the temple and the city, is for the benefit of my people Jacob, the church. I have surnamed you, though you have not known me. This is not a converted man and cannot be building a spiritual temple because he doesn't understand spiritual things. Okay? This prophecy is about an unconverted man who will deal with both the temple and the city in the end time. We'll prove that in just a moment. I am the Eternal, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded you, though you have not known me. I gave you the strength, but you haven't known me. God reiterates it, repeats it. Now, for what purpose? That they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, around the world, east and west, that there is none beside me, I am the eternal, and there is none else. Now, did the whole world know by a few Jews going to Jerusalem and building a temple and later a wall that God was God? That didn't prove that. It just proved a physical king could send money out of the treasury and a bunch of Jews could build a temple. That didn't prove anything about God being God of the entire earth, did it? Now, God is the God of heaven and earth who created it all. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. And he is going to make known through a man at the end time that God is God. And there is none else. Every knee is going to bow or be broken eventually. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Eternal, do all these things. If you'll read on, you'll see. But God is showing who he is. Verse 18, For thus says the Eternal that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it. He has established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Eternal, and there is none else. Verse 23, That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Verse 25, and the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. What God is going to do to a human being who is going to give the hidden treasures of darkness and the secret riches, he's going to give the gold and the silver, the precious things, to build a temple and to build Jerusalem, and it will stand as a light to the entire world on a hill, the hill of the original Jerusalem, and the whole world is going to recognize that God is God. The beast and the false prophet will be building a false temple in a false Jerusalem, in a false promised land, and a false Jesus is going to come there as the Antichrist, and he's going to set his foot in that temple of the devil. But the whole world is going to think it's the temple of God. 
But God's few people are going to be in the original Jerusalem, built by a physical man, and that abomination will be set up in a physical temple. And we will flee from it if we be in Judea. And Judea, the original, is formed in the western United States. Judah and Utah are essentially the same. The tau in the geology up here forms Judah. A U and a T. Judah. It is going to amaze the world. I see more and more evidence of that. Now, what is God building up to? He went through all these physical tabernacles and temples. He built his church, and he said, that's the temple of God. At the same time, he wants a physical temple to show the world not just a church, but that he is God because he's going to give it riches beyond the riches of the rest of the world combined. And they'll have to pay attention. And the glory of the latter temple, both spiritually and physically, will outshine the former temple of Herbert Armstrong, of Solomon, of the tabernacle in the wilderness. It will be far greater, both physically and spiritually, than has ever been before. And it is still only a type and a pattern of what shall come. Now, what's going to come Afterward, let's answer that and then we'll stop. Psalm 132. David saying, verse 4, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find out a place for the eternal, a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrata. We found it in the fields of the woods, speaking of the tabernacle, the ark. Verse 12, if your children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Eternal has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. He's going to dwell in Zion forevermore. Chapter 135, verse 21. Blessed be the Eternal out of Zion which dwells at Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Zion are very close together. And Zion and Jerusalem will be his dwelling place. Let's go to Revelation 21 now. Revelation 21, the beginning of a millennium. We're going to see something happen. Revelation 21, verse 2. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Verse 10, he carried me away into the Spirit, say, he said, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife, in verse 9. And then he, when he, after he said that, he showed me that holy Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. We are the 144,000, will be if we qualify. We'll be part of the new Jerusalem. Verse 22, he describes this great city coming down from heaven. Verse 22, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. All of these physical temples, physical or spiritual churches, have only been a figure, a type, of what God has been planning all along. 
He's going to bring down a heavenly Jerusalem that is beyond our imagination and beauty and splendor. Streets paved with gold and so on. That's what this is all about. And I do believe now, even more than I did before, after having studied these scriptures last night, that there will have to be a physical temple for the abomination to be set up in, for it to be defiled so that God's people have to flee from it. And it will be a very resplendent temple with gold and with silver that God is going to provide through a Gentile, unconverted man. I don't mean Gentile in blood, but I mean an unconverted man, spiritual Gentile, to his spiritual people, Jacob. And we will also build, through Zerubbabel, a spiritual temple, a church. They will go hand in hand, and both will be used to the honor and to the glory of God. He has his throne in heaven. The earth is his footstool. He doesn't need a house for himself. He already has it. We need to be allowed to be part of his house. And all of these things that have been on the earth, the physical temples and the churches, spiritual temples, have only been a forerunner and a type of what will be. And when that spiritual heavenly Jerusalem comes down from heaven, God is there now and he dwells there. He's not going to come down here and live in some temple made with hands. These physical temples made with hands are only temporary. His dwelling is in heaven. He only comes and dwells in temples laid with hands in spirit. Indwelling in our bodies and minds in spirit. Dwelling in the tabernacle in the wilderness in spirit. In the spirit of God filled the temple. He believes in physical temples made with hands. He's used them all through history. He also believes in a spiritual temple, the church, and our bodies. And he's used it from James, Peter, and John on down till today. But it isn't something he needs, it's something we need. So he's going to bring it from heaven, where he lives in it. And we, if we're part of the 144,000 as the bride of Christ, will dwell with him in it. And no more will the unrighteous, the filthy, the adulterer, the whoremonger, the liar, the cheat, the thief, be in it, able to enter therein. We'll be at the beginning of the millennium. There'll still be sinners around. But they cannot come in the city of God. He will dwell there, the Father and the Son, with the bride of Christ. It's an incredible story. No, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. He dwells in heaven. But he has great use for physical temples. And I believe, based on the scriptures we just saw, that there has to be one more physical temple built. And one more spiritual temple built. And from those, God is going to show the entire world that he is God. And they will either worship and obey him, or they will not. And then he is going to bring his temple down and begin to convert the world to his way of thinking. That's the way he has it laid out. So there is no contradiction between the temples, both physical and spiritual, God has put on the earth and him not dwelling in temples made with hands. He has made them and he has dwelt in them in spirit. 
and he's going to come and he's going to dwell here instead of up there. The story becomes complete and clear when you understand it in that way.